This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Scarlett Fu here with you on a Friday. And as we do on most Fridays, certainly the Fridays that we like the most, we check in with Ian Lusbader. He is a doctor and clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. Joining us on the phone from New York City. Ian, it's always a treat to catch up with you. And I do want to thank you, as I always do, or as I always think I should, uh, for all your good advice and counsel throughout this pandemic. You've really been a valuable voice to us, and we really appreciate it. Very kind. Thanks. And uh, it's great to be with you, and it's great to try and contribute to uh, some knowledge and understanding of a, of a challenging area. And welcome, Scarlett. And uh, always good to speak to you, Jason. So where are we right now? I mean, here we are. Uh, it's the end of July, last day of July uh, here. I think back to the conversations that we've had over these months. And while the overall picture doesn't seem great, certainly nationally, I feel like if you went, if we went back and told ourselves in, you know, our sort of May selves or our April selves, certainly this is where we'd be in New York City and its environs. We we'd probably feel pretty good about this. I, I agree. I think uh, certainly the Northeast and New York has made great strides, and it does look like there there are waves passing through the rest of the country. But certainly in the Northeast here, uh, New York back in uh, March and April was a ghost town, and hospitals were overloaded. The entire medical centers were really overrun, completely overrun with COVID patients, and and regular medical care was not really being done. This was some of the issues that Dr. Fauci and Redfield. Uh, addressed today in the you know congressional hearings and uh, much regular medical care was not being done uh, and there were probably a number of deaths that we could attribute not to COVID but for people just being either afraid to come in or not coming in and I think one of the big issues as we have had cases drop at least in the northeast is you know reopening and getting back to school right. and and a lot of that was addressed by Fauci and Redfield too with the challenge of uh, teachers and students um needing and wanting to some degree uh, to get back but also some fear about that as well you described it as a ghost town back in march and april i would argue it's still kind of a ghost town i come into the city every day and just outside of the office uh, there are cars but not that many and there are very few people wandering around once people do come back we know a lot of people fled town they've gone to summer homes to the hamptons or just outside of new york once they start to come back because of school because um, things are starting to normalize what kind of pickup in the infection rate do you think we might anticipate or or am i getting ahead of myself here if we take the proper precautions maybe we won't get a pickup 
Well, I think that's a very fair question, Scarlett. And uh, to me, certainly, uh, I've been in the office every day uh, since January and looking out the window and, and walking on the streets. It's definitely busier. I agree we're not back up to uh, sort of our baseline frenzy in Manhattan, but uh, certainly dramatically uh, busier. And I think uh, it's unclear getting back to the office uh, and getting back to school. But I would echo what Fauci and uh, Redfield um talked about, which were really sort of those five principles. You know, if people wear masks and avoid crowds doing reasonable social distancing, which not every office uh, has easily available, people will have to perhaps reconfigure a bit, hand washing, uh, avoiding yelling and and, uh, uh, loud speaking, in in other words, aerosolizing potential viral particles. I think we can reasonably get back to business. there will have to be some accommodation, certainly in school, that may be smaller classrooms or alternate days or, or hybrid learning. But overall, I think uh, we can do that, and I think we should do that. You're right. There may be some pickup. We haven't really seen that yet. We will know, unfortunately, uh, by increased hospitalizations. But at this point, uh, it seems certainly very safe to uh, let people back to a more normal life. Ian, What's the most important headline in your estimation this week when it comes to either therapeutics or vaccines? What did you learn this week that we need to go into the weekend thinking and talking about? Well, I think we're seeing uh, incremental um, uh, progress really in a variety of fronts. And and that is articles have come out about the origin of COVID-19, which I don't think necessarily changes our treatment at this point. But it does look genetically like this really did originate in bats. And uh, that's sort of off the radar for most of us. We, We don't really think about that. But it does highlight that there are some changes like wet markets and so forth that probably were really uh, the source of this, although there's still some questions about, you know, virology lab or, or or potentially a lab leak. But it does seem, at least based on some studies, that this really did originate as a, as a virus in bats and whether or not modifications or other things occurred. Um, in addition, there was a, a recent article on uh, masks. This did exclude the U.S., but in many other countries, there was an observational study that really showed people who uh, wear masks have a much lower incidence of touching their face. And that seems to be a significant contributor to reducing the spread while we're waiting for more therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies, which also have a lot of um, a promise in addition to vaccines. And we're also making progress on the vaccine front, you know, phase three trials, right. uh, 30,000 patients. And I'm very optimistic about that. Fauci is, NYU is involved in one of those studies. Um, and I think for sure, uh, by December, January, probably February at the latest, we'll really have um, a vaccine uh, that has been tested yeah. and hopefully uh, should be safe. And then we have to see, will people take it? Right. Uh, that will yeah, be the no, next turtle. It's a huge question. All right. Stick with us, uh, Dr. Ian Lesbader. We've got more to talk about, including sports. We want to get your take on a lot of headlines Scarlett and I have been following when it comes to Major League Baseball, especially uh, as sports get underway, kind of. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader from NYU's Langone Medical Center. So, Ian, talk to us about sports. You've seen the same headlines we have, especially, especially excuse me, around Major League Baseball. How worried are you that we're not going to see a full baseball season here? 
Well, everyone is concerned about how to safely get back to normal activities, whether it's the office, whether it's, you know, patients, whether it's sports. Uh, and it's unfortunately going to be somewhat imperfect. Uh, fortunately, uh, baseball and sports is important. It's not necessarily an essential service, but people really do need it to relax and unwind and really take their mind off a lot of the stresses and strains. So there are a variety of approaches that we use for testing. One, patients may come in and say, look, I was sick uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago or a month ago. Uh, did I have COVID? We do an antibody test. And if it's positive, that's pretty assuring. Now, those antibodies do drop off over time. So if someone says, five months ago I was sick, a negative antibody test really is not that helpful. And we also do swab tests or other tests that really detect whether the virus is present in the nose uh, or in the pharynx or is it communicable. Uh, and those can be helpful to test before you travel before you come back to work, before you play in a sports game. Now, again, you can have people who are asymptomatic feel fine and harbor the virus. Uh, a number of young, healthy people do that. So, uh, And, of course, uh, baseball is not necessarily a high-contact sport, uh, unlike football. And people may have the virus, but they may have acquired it elsewhere from families or the community. Right. So it's not, it's not that baseball itself may be necessarily risky, but people have normal lives outside of baseball. Yeah. But I think if we test people and we get these results back anywhere from 10 minutes to 24 hours later, I think if we can test a player and say the day before, as we do before, say, colonoscopies, uh, if they're negative, then I think it's reasonable for them to engage in, 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 uh, in the sport. Right so now, my- it will take a lot of testing. Right now, my understanding, according to reports, is that the MLB is testing players every other day, but the results typically come in about 36 hours later. So in the meantime, those players are continuing to do their normal routine, which includes traveling to other cities to play against other teams. And then they have to backtrack later on if they find out anything. I mean, this is a league that can afford to test its players every other day. What does it say about our ability to get youth sports back online again? If I, Clearly, youth sports are not going to test players until there's a reason to, until the family member brings someone to the doctor's office because they suspect that they're is something going on? That's a, that's a great question, right? So typically we say, well, what are we going to do with the result? So if you are positive or negative, if you feel fine, are we going to do anything differently? So if someone is sick, uh, a respiratory infection, cough, diarrhea, fever, you know, any of those uh, classic symptoms, yes, it's very helpful to do a swab and say you have it, and you may manage the patient differently. You're right. In terms of dollars and cents, it can get very expensive to test people constantly. And most sports don't have that ability. I think for youth sports, there there are two things. One, um, the more testing, the better. But if a kid really is sick, fortunately, they tend to do better than older people. It's not like 50 or 60 or 70-year-olds who have a much, much higher risk. I'm not saying they're at zero risk. I'm just saying that overall kids tend to do better. On the other hand, uh, you know, they may have to have fewer games. They may have to test and wait 36 hours and then schedule a game for everyone, you know, twice a week. Uh, yeah. Playing every day may not, may not be realistic. Yeah, there's so many big questions. I feel like we're still finding our way here for sure. Dr. Ian Lesbader, great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for your time as always. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center. Well, I have to say, if the vacationing Carol Masser were here, she would classify this as a, wait, what? 
sort of story. <laughs> it is an amazing read. Danielle Bokov wrote it. She is a reporter for Bloomberg News, but I have to say that title is actually outdated as of this week. She has just been named our new Toronto Bureau Chief. So congratulations to Big her congrats. on that huge job and well-deserved. She joins us from Toronto and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us as well. So Joel, tee this up for us because this is an incredible story about golden hands. What? <laughs> yeah. Do, do we get your interest there? Um, it, you know, th this has actually been sort of months in the works and you know then the pandemic hit and everything got weird but the moment that we uh that that Danny pitched the story we were like wait what so we got to rewind the clock a little bit and in the early 2000s Nelson Mandela the South African icon um had uh you know basically uh uh you know become an international uh icon and um, as part of that um some people cast his hands in South Africa and the idea was that they were going to turn his these castings into uh, uh, precious metals, gold and others, that they would be able to kind of show around the world and, and really kind of like, you know, make his legacy be something that everyone could actually see in person. So uh, that happened. And uh, then it it kind of went sideways because he said, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be affiliated with this anymore. And, and I'm going to turn over to Danny there because... There was an art collector who stepped in and was like, you know, there's only a couple of these around. I'm going to go ahead and just put them all together and get, make a set. So, Danny, who was this guy and, and where did the story go from there? So, his name was Malcolm Duncan, and I actually met him two years ago. So, it goes back e even further. In, in 2018, I was approached by a PR firm representing this South African businessman, Malcolm Duncan, uh, and they were trying to drum up publicity for a sale. And at the time, they had a tentative buyer, Arbitrade, which was a, a Canadian cryptocurrency company. And at least part of the payment for these golden hands of Nelson Mandela was going to be in Bitcoin. So e even then, it was just a bizarre story. And I actually did a short article about the sale at the time, but I didn't have a lot of time to dig into the backstory. And it, it sort of it became one of those stories that you sort of regret never having delved into as deeply as you could have. Then earlier this year, um, Guernsey's Auction House reached out to me through another PR firm to say that they were planning this spectacular event at Jazz at Lincoln Center to introduce these amazing objects to the world. They were going to auction them off, and would I like to cover the auction? So I called Malcolm back. Uh, I found out that the Arbitrade deal had shockingly collapsed disastrously. I got more of that backstory. And uh, it just became one of those stories where the more I found out about these things, the, the more interesting it got. So what fascinates me here is that you would think there's a lot of demand for things that are linked to uh, Nelson Mandela and also for gold, given where gold prices are trading. But it's been hard for Malcolm Duncan to get a lot of interest for these golden hands. Why is that? There's been a real um, taint around Mandela art. I, I think when he was initially released from prison after 20 years, 27 years in prison, um, this whole kind of cottage industry sprang up around Mandela art. And, you know, he had done his own art, but, but people were slapping his names on everything. And at a certain point, he got fed up with it. He shut it down. There were a lot of lawsuits. And I think to this day, people, in fact, get quite uncomfortable when you bring up the whole tawdry mess of Mandela art in South Africa. Um, so because of that, 
there there had been plans to make just a ton of these things. They were going to be in silver and bronze. There was going to be one for every day of every year that he'd been in prison. As far as we know, and, and Harmony has confirmed this, Duncan is believed to have the only surviving copies, which are these four gold hands. Um, and you're right. I mean, the the... I was there for two days at the auction. It wasn't well advertised, but very few people came out. What struck me, though, as amazing was those people who, who did come out, just how moved they were by these things. So, Danny, I have to ask about the auction, and, and tell us what went down and where things stand now. Okay. So the auction was a very bizarre situation. As I said, I was there for two days, you know, not very many people came came around. Those and this was did, early, sort of early March early in New in York, March. pre-pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to paint the scene, you imagine it's at Jazz at Lincoln Center, so it's this beautiful, beautiful venue, dark red, sort of jazz playing softly. These things are in these cases lit from above, uh, and the room is absolutely empty. People drift in from time to time. A lot of them are actually moved to tears when they see them, which was quite something to watch. But most of the people that I saw there over the two days were actually people who had skin in the game. They were they were people associated with the auction. Um, you know, one of one of the investors of Arbitrate, who now owns two of the hands, the ownership of these things was quite complicated. So the auction happens. Um, only two of the hands sale sell. Everybody's feeling quite flat afterwards. And then suddenly, like at the 11th hour, um, somebody's on the phone and it's the buyer. And he says, actually, he'll take the other two as well. So this mysterious buyer on the phone ends up paying more for all of the hands than he could have got them for 15 minutes earlier had he just bought them during the auction. It was just bizarre. Everybody was shocked. The auctioneer said he had to sit down. Nobody had seen anything like this. And it seemed like this great, perfect ending to my story, except Malcolm Duncan never got paid. And so... <laughs> oh, man. I know the <laughs> so twist is just are. like you keep... You, you're you like, okay, well, that, I mean, it's like one of these like thrillers where it's like, but wait, I mean, it's crazy. It was really crazy. And, you know, you you got to feel for Malcolm Duncan. He's like this incredibly colorful character. He tells the most amazing stories, uh, and he has been trying to unload these hands for so many years at this point. Um, last I spoke to him, the Guernseys, the auction house, says that even though the buyer missed the deadline to pay, that that, that possibility is still out there, that that sale is still live, it's still going to happen. Um, Malcolm is very doubtful about this, but he yeah. thinks he may have an Italian buyer on the line. We, we don't know much about that person. Uh, so, so yeah, not a lot of resolution. In no, this story. no, but it is, <laughs> it is a tale fit for a Netflix series. I, I'll just say that, uh, it is amazing. Uh, Danielle Bokov, she is our new Toronto bureau chief, newly minted. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on this story as well. As I said to, uh, Danielle, when I sent her a message earlier, it's a heck of a week to, uh, have this story and get that job. So, uh, congrats to her. It's a terrific read. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, we've gotten very interested, especially of late with the launch of Bloomberg Green, in what's going on in the world of sustainable investing. Luckily for us, we have Chris McNett with us.
Davis. He's co-head of sustainable investing at Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. So, Chris, it feels like, first of all, thank you for joining Scarlett and myself on this Friday afternoon. It does feel like sustainable investing starting to have a moment, I would guess you would argue it's been having a moment for a while, but it does feel like the aperture is widening a bit in a good way that more people are paying attention. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, also, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I would say that, yes, you know, for those of us like me who have been in this space for a lot of years, it felt like, uh, it feels like, you know, now uh, we're almost sitting in an inflection point um, where it's really getting into the mainstream. Um, and we've seen the demand really hold up through, you know, the really choppy, choppy markets in the first part of the year and, and really start to accelerate. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, that that we can go into. Well, it usually comes down to performance as well. I mean, along with people wanting to increase their exposure to sustainable companies and ESG principles, performance matters. And usually in an ESG portfolio, Portfolios are going to underweight companies in the energy sector and perhaps load up on companies that are in the tech sector. We have a market right now that is all driven by technology, and when it does fall, it's being led by energy stocks. How much how much technology exposure does Wells Fargo's ESG portfolio or sustainable portfolio have? Yeah, I mean, it's performance does always matter at the end of the day. Um, and I think that's what's really starting to draw a lot more interest is that the, the performance of sustainable funds um, have really held up uh, particularly well, you know, not just here to date, but even if you look across longer time periods. And it's true that, um, you know, a sustainable investing mindset might lead you to underweight energy. And, of course, the way that energy has performed, you know, of late, um, that's kind of been a winning trade. But a lot of the, uh, the outperformance is coming not from sector uh, misweights, but really from looking at ESG credentials um, and reflecting that in security selection. So we really go sector by sector when we analyze ESG rather than um, try and pick over or underweights uh, to sectors. We really look at, at particular companies and do that deep research. So, Chris, I do wonder, uh, you know, what's been the impact It either kind of tonally or or demonstrably when it, or quantifiably, I guess, when it comes to COVID-19 and maybe a, a change in thinking, you know, you reference some of the choppiness and, and the volatility in the market, but I do wonder, are people reconsidering kind of where they're investing and how they're investing, just given everything that's going on in the world? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I think there was a fair bit of commentary that so much of the growth uh, and in the ESG marketplace happened since the global financial crisis. That was maybe a bear market luxury, and we've actually seen it um, not just hold up through the pandemic, but but actually really thrive. Um, and what it's also causing, to your point, is a bit of a rethink about what's really valuable um, from, you know, maybe a, um, a values or, or moral standpoint. Like a human perspective, right? I mean, like, yeah. I think people yeah. are thinking more about what they're doing for the world. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think it particularly comes down to, um, you know, employee well-being and human capital. That's always been a concern of sustainable and of investors because of kind of the innate morality of fair and decent work, but also the potential performance benefits that can come from it. Hmm. So we really start to see social concerns, um, and, that, and that can be diversity, that could be, you know, fair and equal employment, really start to, to rise up the agenda 
Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that's probably going to persist, you know, through and um, beyond the, beyond the crisis. Yeah, backing up your, your principles with your money. Um, Chris, we spoke earlier uh, this week, Jason and I did, with the sustainability chief of Philip Morris International, the cigarette company, and they have yeah. a pretty ambitious plan. They are working towards a smoke-free future. Um, they're making changes to their supply chain, zero child labor, for instance, ensuring that 100% of farmers make a living income by 2025, electronic smoke-free devices um, equipped with age verification technology by 2023. You look at your potential stocks uh, on a security-by-security basis. Would Philip Morris make the cut? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that comes down to um, a lot of, you know, what investors really value. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we're, we exist to serve our investors. Um, so some investors probably would have a problem with a, with a company like Philip Morris just because of the types of products that they make, which um, in many ways, you know, do inflict harm and a kind of a social cost. You know, but if you're thinking about looking at, say, a Philip Morris compared to another tobacco company, then you would look uh. at those types of things that you, uh, you that you just spelled out, and then you could use them uh, to assess, um, you know, which of those uh, tobacco companies or which oil company, um, you know, are more aligned with a sort of a healthier, more sustainable future. And then in that context, sure, you could have a, a portfolio where it could find its way in there. Interesting. All right. Well, we'd love to keep in touch with you. This is really interesting. Chris McNett, co-head of sustainable investing for Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to close. I have to mention one thing, uh, Scarlett, that you'll get a kick out of. I just saw a tweet go by that says, in reference to uh, Microsoft and its potential uh, acquisition of TikTok, Someone said, someone tweeted, Microsoft is in TikToks. <laughs> that's funny. That's only that's something only a, a business journalist, I think, could love. But There, there are a lot of things that only business journalists get really <laughs> excited over, them. and that's one of them. Exactly. Any kind of word pun, you know, especially uh, in a Twitter format. Exactly. It really is. It w- Twitter was made for ridiculous things like that. All right. Let's get serious here. It's Friday. Henley Smith is back with us, Senior Vice President, Senior Relationship Manager for Stonecastle Cash Management. Once again with us, he joins us on the phone from Easton, Connecticut. Henley, how are you? How are things in Connecticut? Yes. Well, very, very well. I'm calling you from rural Connecticut, where we do social distancing. We have it down to a science. Yes. So, yes. And I enjoyed that pun as well. I thought that was very clever. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we do our best, you know, to keep it a little light here on a Friday. I mean, it's been an interesting period. Even this week, you know, I was asking Henley, our stocks editor, Dave Wilson, just a few minutes ago, like, what's the thing that you sort of take away from this week? And I'll pose the same question to you. What, you know, what's the most important thing as you maybe have a socially distanced cocktail or or something, or maybe a Zoom cocktail, whatever it's going to be? Like, what, what really struck you about the, the markets this week or the investing world? 
Well, it, you know, it's kind of been ongoing for us as we're dealing with kind of an interesting dynamic. As you know, our focus is a short part of the fixed income curve and cash management, cash investments. And obviously, we're dealing with ultra-low interest rates yet again. Uh, but the interesting dynamic uh, and the takeaway I have is that cash continues to build up, mostly on the institutional level. And uh, with even with these low interest rates, uh, the choices that institutional investors have continue to be limited. So uh, you're seeing a lot of money market funds, prime money market funds uh, shut down. You're starting to see uh, government money market funds limit their uh, investors. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic where, again, you have all this cash that's kind of been building up as a reserve, as a rainy day fund. It's just, you know, what's going to happen next. And uh, even with those low interest rates, uh, they're having trouble placing it. So the curve really, in short, has really kind of flattened, as we all know, and it continues to compress. Uh, but that doesn't deter uh, institutional investors. They're still building cash at this point. So. They're still building cash. What's going to cause them to make a decision to put it to work? I mean, Jason was talking about $1.5 trillion uh, for private equity. We had uh, Katie Greifeld on earlier talking about uh, CLO ETFs uh, because everyone's looking for some kind of yield. Cash is building up. Cash is sitting there in money market funds. At some point, someone's going to want to commit it to, to put in something that will tie it up for more than just a day or two or a month or a week. What's going to be that catalyst? Yeah, yeah again, I, I don't know what the catalyst. I mean, I think we all know what the ultimate catalyst will yeah. be, and that you know, a, a vaccine that's uh, safe and effective, and we know that that's the ultimate. But yeah, at some point, the cash continues to build. It's going to have to find a place that it can earn a better return. You know, most money market funds are paying under 10 basis points, closer to one basis point right now. Now, again, a lot of our clients still want to have the FDIC insured through our our programs. And that's what they're hanging on to right now. But at some point, uh, they're going to move out on the curve or do something that typically, you know, a lower quality asset. And that ultimately might be the, you know, a second mistake. Uh, There's really no uh, premium to extend at this point. I was talking to a client this week and they said they could get place six month money at two basis points. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, I said, I, I think we all know what it ultimately is, but at, at some point that money is going to have to move somewhere. But right now uh, it's, you know, I want to stay safe. I want to stay liquid and I'm not going to move it from there. And if, not, if I'm not going to pay less for it, as long as I know it's there, I'm, I'm happy with that. And that's the message we continue to get from our clients. So Henley, Talk to me, if you can, about the political scene as it relates to investors, because I feel like, and I've said this on this program several times, in a normal presidential election year, we would really starting to be heating up right now when it comes to trying to figure out from an investment perspective what a re-election or a new administration would mean. Historically, how have you thought about that? How are your clients feeling about it now, given that the presidential election is really just one of several major inputs that are on their minds. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a difficult period, nonetheless, just having all this politicized back and forth and all the things that we've been dealing with. And as we've talked about before, it feels like we've just kind of tripped into one crisis after the next after the next. And I think in, in typical years, you would kind of wait till after Labor Day and then get all excited or not excited or what have you or kind of do the analysis. Um, but, yeah, I think from the very beginning, this period that we've been in, this very unusual period has been politicized. And so we've been dealing with that back and forth. And um, but, I, you know, again, I, I think that 
kind of focuses and feeds into what we've been doing. That's why you've seen a lot of large businesses just hang on to cash and keep it there and uh, retail investors as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they're, they're just going to let things play out and then, then make a decision. And I think that's probably the smart thing to do. Speaking of companies with a lot of cash and retail investors, Apple, of course, uh, announcing a four-for-one stock split. Jason and I were talking about how ultimately it may be a play for retail investors because you bring down the price of each shares, each stock. Do you think that's how investors see it? I would think so. Um, you know, again, it, it, it even net, 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 it's the same price, but uh, it looks cheaper. Uh, so obviously, you see Apple uh, uh, moving up smartly again today. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that four for one split uh, will make the price uh, that much more affordable for a lot of people, and they'll broaden out their their investor base. And uh, I think a lot of people will will gravitate towards that. It's a great name, as we know, and. Uh, uh, you know, I think if it's if it's cheap on a share per share basis, mm-hmm. then I think you'll see a lot more people get involved. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Henley Smith, Senior Vice President, Senior Relationship Manager for Stonecastle Cash Management. Joining us on the phone, as he pointed out, from rural Easton, Connecticut. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.